Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Jessica McNaught, the CEO of Kara Green. So Jessica, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I look at your background and it said you started in uh, electrical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That is true. That is a true fact. <laughs> so what, what was your thought there? Like when you originally got into electrical engineering? You know, I think that my thought was, you know, I'm, I felt like I was decent at math and, you know, I'd applied to a bunch of different schools, but University of Vermont, where, you know, my grandfather had gone, my dad had gone, my sister was going there. I got a scholarship there. And therefore, I didn't get to maybe go to some of the schools that I thought I was going to go to. So when I got to school, I thought, you know what, I'm going to pick the hardest thing I can think of to do. And that was electrical engineering. And it's really funny, you know, in retrospect, because it was probably the best, the most I got out of it was the discipline of the school mm. and doing a really good job of balancing having fun and making it through engineering school. But my little brother went through the same program and he understands electrical engineering. I mean, he he totally gets it. I don't know that I ever really got it. I think I was really good at memorizing things and I like technology and research and and some of that stuff. But it's really, I think it's the discipline that's really kind of helped me further in my career as I ended up in building materials. <laughs> Interesting. So before you ended up in building materials, you spent a little time in a semiconductor side. Yep. Tell me about that. Yeah. So where University of Vermont is in Burlington, it's, it's really tied to IBM was up there, their microelectronics division. So we had a good working relationship and I got this internship first year. Hey, was great. So I got to work at IBM and I just, I stayed with IBM and moved to Boston with them and ultimately moved out to California with them. So, but I was never forget, a woman came into my office one day, Sherry Love, I think was her name. And I'd been working there for about nine months and I was full time. And I was doing these things called IBIS curves, which were like voltage versus current. I had no idea what they meant. I really didn't know what I was doing. And she walked into my office and she goes, you know, you're a salesperson, right? And she's like, I'm going to get you a job in sales. And she did. I mean, she got me a job. I moved down to Boston and, and there I went. But if not for her, I don't think that I would have maybe left that IBM box that you end up in. So it was really, it was really interesting. And I, I really appreciate that. Just that one person just observing and just kind of changed the direction of my career. Mm. What do you think that person saw particularly with you? I was social and I just, I interact a lot with people and I try to get things done and things forward and convince people and I think that, you know, when you see that in a, in such a technical regimented by the book kind of place, you know, she, she recognized it. And I think one of the things I remember the most was sitting in a meeting with all these, everyone's buttoned up and all these white males sitting around a table and I'm what, 23, I'm sitting in the room and I'm like, what did we get out of this meeting? I'm like, I don't, I don't know what just happened. Like we just sat here for an hour. And literally no one has an action item. No, nothing got accomplished. And I think it was that kind of probably like aggressiveness and attitude that, that isn't very common in those kind of big company environments. So I'm guessing that that was probably what she saw was that I was, I wanted to get things done. I wanted to make things happen. And, and that seems like sales when you're in that sort of environment. Interesting. 
Now, so how did you make the leap into building materials? Yeah, so I worked at this company called Jazz Semiconductor, and I learned a very valuable lesson that I always caution my real young go-getters against. I was doing, I showed promise in sales, so I was doing sales. And then I showed promise in marketing, so they just gave me marketing, and then public relations, and then investor relations. And then I was the liaison for the COO. And I started doing everything okay and nothing great. And these this group of SPAC, it was a special purpose acquisition company. They came in and they wanted to get away from semiconductors and start making products. And they bought the company. And I just had, saw the writing on the wall. And I a friend of mine called and said, hey, you want to come up here and sell soundproof drywall? And I'm thinking, excuse me, like I am doing all these different things. And you want me to just focus on sales of soundproof drywall? And sure enough, I went up there and did it. And I really loved the acoustic side of it. It was so technical. Like we were talking about all the details. So I was indulging my engineering side, but I was selling. Yeah, for sure. And then at the same time, it seemed like you were juggling, I guess, medical technologies and stuff like that. What what was that? Yeah. So when I, I moved to Hong Kong, where all three of my children were born, so and I was getting my MBA out there. So I had a friend who was developing this insole that would basically detect the pressure in your foot and prevent you from getting sores when you for diabetics who can't feel their feet. So she needed a liaison over there who could work on the semiconductor side. So I was still doing, you know, I was working for Kara Green on a contract basis and I was working for her on a contract basis. And again, here I am indulging my technical side, which I love, really kind of helping, you know, get the sensor technology and debugging some of the software. And then, you know, on the other side, I was still working with Kara Green and kind of helping kind of start to lay the groundwork for, you know, what that business was going to become. Yeah, for sure. Now, going back to, you mentioned Kara Green. What's that company about? And how did it, you were there from the very beginning, I, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. How did you get it off the ground? So Caragreen was really interesting because I was, I was kind of triangulating myself. And I said, look, I worked at IBM, which was this big company. I worked at Jazz, which was kind of a mid-sized company. It had spun off of Rockwell. And I wanted to work at a startup. And I had moved to North Carolina with the drywall company, but I was, I needed something else. I knew it at that time. And so I, I literally Googled building material startups in North Carolina <laughs> and I found Caregreen. It was just a website and it said hiring salesperson. So I submitted my resume and didn't think again about it. And it was probably four or five months later that Stacy Glass reached out to me and we interviewed and it was, we just hit it off immediately. So I joined them as their first salesperson and it was I think it was fortuitous because I had come from this big company sales. So I really pushed for those big company tools like salesforce.com. Those things that I knew were so valuable in a big company. If you could install those in a small company, you really had, you could build a platform for the future and to really scale the business. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what do you you think some of the keys were on, on top of the technology that you installed to get the business going? Yeah, so... Caregreen was founded because there was all these great materials out there and nobody was aggregating them or bringing them locally. So when we first started, that was the theory was, hey, people are building these lead buildings and green buildings, but all these materials are somewhere else. Let's bring them all locally here so that people can access them. And that's what we started to do. I think that was kind of the platform for Caregreen. Then, of course, that was 2008, 2009. So 
the building materials industry just took a big whack. And it was, I think it was 2014 when I came back to the US from Hong Kong and I had my MBA in hand. So um, Stacy had gone on to, she was on a sabbatical with her husband and she had left her role. So there was an opening and David, who was one of our owners said, do you want to be the salesperson or do you want to run the company? And I just thought it was such a unique opportunity. You know, here I have my MBA in my pocket <laughs> to go in and have a chance to run a company, you know, and it was, it was still relatively small at that time, but that was, I think, one of the most unique opportunities kind of that presented itself to me. The timing was just perfect. Yeah, for sure. And then I guess, you know, you had all these products you were aggregating and what sort of philosophy or kind of criteria were you setting for the type of partnerships or products that you were bringing together in this distribution company? Yeah. So I would say early days, it was, can we get it was the <laughs> criteria because we had nothing. And I think that, I think that when I came back and I sort of had this sort of big city mentality, having lived in Hong Kong and my life wasn't dependent on whether this was make or break. So I felt, I think I was a little you know, confident in just, if this doesn't work, it doesn't work. But we went to some of the big brands and they had really suffered in 08, 09. And by 2014, they were looking again. And we just partnered with some of the right people at the right time. Like Paperstone was a great partner. And then they led us to other people that wanted to partner with us. And we just started really kind of bringing these brands in that were familiar brands to people. They just needed a kind of a rebranding. So at that time, we were getting these good products coming in. And then, you know, ultimately, where we've landed now, when we decide, and I look back at all the products we've brought together, there was a story. Everyone had a good story. What is your good contributing story? And if you can't make that compelling case, we don't want the product because if you're not doing anything to make it better, and that's one of the things that is one of our taglines is create better. And so that's what we challenge our partners to do is you can't just say this product happens to have recycled content in it. Why did you make it that way? You know, is that important to you? What other things are you doing to take that? one characteristic and expand it and go further. So we like our products to have, maybe maybe they're not recycled content. And that's where we've had to get our headspace. We were stuck in, is it recycled? What percent? Now it's, does it not contain these caustic things? Does it allow you to use 60% less material than you had to use before? So some of those things, and you know these from your own business, people want to feel like they're doing the right thing. And so what's been important to me is with manufacturers, when they come to us, they see us as storytellers and they know they've got this great story in other distributors. All they want to do is turns, turns. How much money can I make? How much money can I make? We don't. We want to go out and tell your compelling story in a compassionate way and kind of convey what you're doing and why you're doing it. And we've just really focused on making sure that the people that we send out are ambassadors for the cause and that they know the story and they know how to tell it. Interesting. So you've worked for a big company, mm -hmm. you've managed a mid-sized company, and you started in a startup, which mm -hmm. now at this point, I'm assuming with all these partners, is on a very steep growth trajectory. Mm -hmm. What sort of things have you learned through that? I learned there's a certain number of certain number of people where you start to challenge the culture of the company. So there's a certain level of hiring where you can't keep that sort of family feel. And that's been challenging for me because that feel has been so comfortable and important to me that everyone fits in. 
So as you grow and you in- keep introducing new personalities, it's hard to hold on to that. So I've had to learn to kind of let that go a little bit. There still is that culture. And then I think one of the other things is I'm a control freak. I know it. But I, when you start with a company like this and you grow it, you know everything. I know that color number. I know the thickness of that. I know the size of that. I know what time that guy placed his order. I know when it's shipping out. Letting go of all the information and letting other people do it. That has been a challenge for me too. And I feel like that is a that is a growth challenge that that everyone has, but it's been the most challenging, but the most rewarding thing. Because when you find those people that you can trust and delegate to without feeling like you need to micromanage, it's a very kind of powerful moment because you know you've done the right thing. Mm. And I don't read a lot of a lot of leadership books, but you'll see quotes on Instagram or whatever. And it's just kind of this like overarching comment, but it is, I I do believe that delegation is a, is a really important task and just being able to step back and let people do it is really important. And then once you see the people do it, it's a very fulfilling feeling. So that, that I think has been one of the hardest things as far as from a management standpoint of growing the business from an app, an operational and logistics standpoint, especially now, and you're seeing this too, building materials are constrained and allocated and they can't get this additive or this ingredient was in this factory and that factory shut down, blew up, froze. And so everything is just a constant explanation. So that's been a challenge is apologizing all the time. But what I've, what we've had to do in this time is I've said to my team, the only thing that you can change is how you communicate, right? So even if the news is bad, give them the news because they can't do anything. They can't switch if they don't know, right? So give them the tools, be a good communicator right now. Those are the things that matter in an industry that's facing supply constraints and stuff like that. Like I've never seen it like this before. Yeah. So with so many constraints right now, how are you approaching the sales process? Are you holding back? Are you continuing? How are you thinking that through? So it's been interesting because in the last, I'd say two or three months, I've really had to get everyone to shift their mentality from, we don't have what they want to, okay, but what do we have? Right? So we've all, they they thought, okay, well, they want this color and we don't have it. So it's going to be three to four weeks. And that process oriented approach is not working right now because it's not three to four weeks, it's six to seven and the project is installing in four. So what other colorways do we have that might work here? So we've been really kind of opting for more of like a substitution mindset. If solve their problem, right? If they, if they can't get your stuff, they're going to go find someone else's stuff. You have other stuff. Look at our other stuff and propose that keep it in the house first before you send them off somewhere else hunting for something else. So I, I think that just getting, and I like processes because it makes it hard to, it eliminates a lot of mistakes, but we've had to shift from this process-oriented mentality to this solution-oriented mentality where we're helping people get what they need. Interesting. So mm-hmm. you talked about processes and obviously you have to sort of, sort of deviate a little bit with, with your solution method now, but within your business, what processes do you think are the most important? So I mentioned salesforce.com before because like I said, we installed it early on and I always said garbage in, garbage out. And we've really used it as a platform for people following up on their tasks, right? There's rules. If you have an open opportunity, you have an open task. 
And we then installed samples on the Salesforce platform and quotes on the Salesforce platform. So the sales team can go in and say, okay, these three sample requests have these three quotes and it goes through a flow and there's approvals, right? So someone checks the pricing, someone checks this, but really just creating a process for those things that are connected to cash, right? Or sales. And you know, we use QuickBooks as well. But for me, it's really important that the flow of money and the ease of sale is really is a refined process. And the first step is samples. And the second step is quotes. And then it's invoicing. So all of those processes are pretty well hammered out with a lot of checks and balances to make sure there's no Whoops, sorry, I gave you my cost instead of my price. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You mentioned samples. Do you have a criteria on who you send samples? I know that in building materials, samples can get very expensive. So Yes, yes. I have had to learn a few things and I'm always learning, but I want to give people samples because I think they're going to buy something, but then they get the samples and they want these other samples and these other samples. And all of a sudden you've sent $300 worth of samples to Henrietta Parker and she's not going to buy anything, right? or students. So we had to kind of buckle down and we're like, listen, if you're a trade professional architect or designer and you want to sample, they're free. But if you're a homeowner or a residential client, or unless there's an exception, we charge for them and we just charge our costs. We just want them to have some skin in the game. Right. And it was hard for me to do that because I wanted people to see our great materials. And, but you know, people are, there's tire kickers out there. I would do that. So I think if they're really interested in the material, it kind of gets a little more qualified customer. So we have our sample ordering on our website, but we're very clear about who gets charged and who doesn't. Now, one of the things in the construction building materials industry people talk and push on is price. Mm -hmm. How do you answer those type of questions? So a lot of our products, I mean, I, I say it kind of ironically, but if this is about price, these are not the products that you should be looking at. We have some that are competitive with other surfacing materials, but at the end of the day, you're getting premium products and you're they're, they're at a slight premium. It's not huge, but if you want to know that 600 recycled plastic bottles went into this baffle, this acoustic baffle, or there's a 28 pounds of plastic in this sheet good, those things, they take a process and something had to happen, some additional cost. So usually it's a combination of aesthetics and cost. You can't price out ridiculously high, but at the same time, there is a premium, but you have to teach your salespeople to be able to educate within that premium and offer alternative materials that may be cheaper. You wanted this stone, this surfacing material, but we have this one that's at a more economical price point. So you can kind of play within that space. But at the end of the day, we sell the story and the story is comes at a premium. These aren't huge manufacturers. And I have that conversation a lot. People say, well, how is, why is Durat more expensive than Corian? I say, because I'm not a multi-billion dollar chemical company, right? <laughs> We're trying to do good. We're trying to create better. We have a, we try to take back programs and things like that, that some of the large manufacturers just can't do. Mm. With your products and with your direction, what sort of trends are you following really closely over the next year or a couple of years? Yeah. So the obvious ones about how are we going to build when we go back? My favorite, the most interesting category for me right now was retail because a lot of these retailers are saying, okay, everyone got real used to shopping online and now I'm going to try to get them back in my store. What does that in-store experience need to be so they don't feel completely removed from that online experience? 
but they have a good experience in the store, whether it's something interactive, whether it's biophilic design within that space, but they're really struggling to come up with solutions. And we've been found by many, many retailers because they see our products and they just, they see it. I can design people back into my space. So retail, I've been keeping an eye on. And then one of the most fascinating things that we saw during 2020 that we did during 2021 was data. So we started engaging on some data platforms that look at, you know, maybe it's construction starts or maybe it's industry news aggregators or maybe it's installation platforms or like there's things called source and mortar. But these different platforms that are the online, when everyone went online, they started looking for inspiration in all these different places. Where can I get samples, material bank, BIM models? So that's what I see. Oh my gosh, all this stuff, all this data that we have access to, we're bringing it all in and we're creating these visualization reports that show us what's the market doing, what colors are trending. And it's fascinating because we had access to it or we have access to it and the amount of data is growing, but it's really allowed us to add a lot of value to our manufacturers. So we can go to them and say, this is what your competitors are doing in these parts of the country. So I don't know what's going on for you in the Midwest, but your competitor is eating your lunch here, maybe not here. So it gives them some really valuable data. So I think being able to feed that back to the manufacturers has been a big thing. And then, as I mentioned, BIM, which is building information modeling. It's basically, for the listeners, it's like a 3D, 3D rendering of a building. But the way things used to be done is a designer would write down specifications. I like this color. I like this carpet, this surface, whatever. And they would choose their what finishes they want in the rest of the building and give it to the architect and the architect would render it. But I see that shifting. I see the architects are going to pull the models into the space and that's going to push out the specifications. So I think you're going to get from a, a modeled environment to a written one instead of a written specification into a model. So I'm keeping a very, very close eye on that because I think that is going to be one of the biggest shifts in how buildings are designed because BIM models can simulate the building and detect errors far before they happen. So it's probably one of the most sustainable things that you can do is create this realization of that building electronically that tells you this doesn't fit here. And you didn't know you were going to have to rip out the whole thing. So I think BIM is going to be a game changer and for all of us. Yeah. So when you're not in your business or working on your business, what do you do? Do you have any hobbies? Yeah. So I box. I go to a boxing gym. My daughter, Gabby, often comes with me. But yeah, so I box. I play tennis. I play in a softball league. And like I said, I'm pretty social. So, you know, I hang out with my friends as much as I can. I run a fantasy football league for the ladies in my neighborhood. So I keep myself relatively busy with that. I have three kids who are all who are 11, 10 and 8 and a dog who he comes to work with me. I walk him his name's Bo. Yeah, but I have a lot of family that lives around the country so I get to see them not as much now as I used to, but I mean I'm a social beast. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So, thank you so much for sharing your info. Is there anything else that I should have asked you or you wanted to quickly cover? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm excited to talk to you and, and be on this and kind of watch watch our industry sort of converge here because you're coming at it coming from the top and I'm coming from the inside out. But, you know, we're kind of grabbing this whole building envelope and I'm just 
really excited to see how buildings just keep changing, keep getting better, and to have partnerships with people like you who kind of help push that create better concept forward. Wonderful, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.